Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. From a local business to a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024. The Economist. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. In China's cities, you'll find a great many new public conveniences, shiny new toilets in boldly decorated buildings. Out in the countryside, the toilet revolution, a big push from President Xi Jinping, isn't quite going to plan. We look into why. And amid all kinds of uncertainty, sanctioned oligarchs, and a drop in the global number of billionaires, you'd think the market for superyachts would be sinking. Our correspondent finds exactly the opposite. First, Elena and Volodymyr Zelensky are probably among the most visible and well-known couples in the world now. Zani Minton Bedos is editor-in-chief of The Economist. He, of course, president of Ukraine, Druhe. ubiquitous in his green T-shirts on all of our screens after Russia's invasion. And she, his wife, who in the first year of the war went around the world drumming up support for Ukraine. She addressed the US Congress, UK Parliament, all manner of international gatherings. And this was and is a tremendous professional partnership as well as a long-standing marriage. They were high school sweethearts. And very soon they started a comedy group he went on, as we know, to become a famous television actor, and she became a screenwriter, and she often wrote his script for him. But a huge amount has obviously changed for them. She recently invited me to Kiev to moderate at a conference on mental health and resilience for first ladies and first gentlemen. And I'm going to turn first to you, uh, Madame Zelenska, because you, along with your husband... As part of that trip, I met with her separately at the presidential palace. And so what is Ms. Zelenska like? She's a really interesting person. She's very, very different to her husband. He's an actor. He loves the limelight. He cracks jokes. She is someone who is actually very shy. She hates the limelight. She very rarely speaks English in public, even though her English is excellent, possibly better than her husband's. She's a very strong person. And she really comes across as someone who has been catapulted into this position I believe she found out her husband was running for president by hearing about it on television. This was not something that she had planned. But since then, I think she has become not just extraordinarily popular, but is widely seen as a remarkable advocate for standing up to the existential threat that Ukraine faces. So she was catapulted into the role of first lady in the first place, as you say, but then also as a sort of wartime first lady. Did she speak to you much about what that part has been like for her life? She told me 
what it was like for her personally, what it meant to them as a couple. The first days, first weeks, first month, it was adrenaline. You know, we had to run and run quickly. And then we had to stop and remind ourselves and recall uh, what we wanted to see in the future. So it, it is more difficult uh, task, how to stand uh, for a long time. She was very honest about how difficult it was to keep going and how for her balance was crucial, balance in her own mental health and well-being. And she said it's the same for every Ukrainian. She said everyone's having to learn to be somewhat selfish, to take time for themselves, because otherwise they risk not being able to stand for a long time, as she put it. And when I saw her, it was the beginning of September, you know, here in London, people were coming back from their summer vacation. So I asked her whether she'd had any semblance of such normalcy. Did you spend some time with your husband and your family on vacation? No. <laughs> any day? No. no, we can meet some days, not on all the day, sometimes mm, in a secret place. <laughs> we, we can meet sometimes, but uh, we can't, I can't speak about uh, the vacation, even about the weekend we spend together. You are clearly a remarkable couple. Can you sustain this yourselves for one, two, three years? Yes. You answered immediately <laughs> and very certainly. Um, I know it. You don't think you've changed in the last 18 months? Obviously, we we changed, uh, but uh, in our couple, in our um, relationship, uh, we're still interested in each other. But they also have children, right? Did she, did she speak to you at all about what it's like bringing up kids in this scenario? They do. They have two children, a daughter, Alexandra, I think she's 19, and a son, Kirillo, who's 10. She was very open that her son misses his father's presence. They do, as she said, largely live separately. But it was also interesting to hear how, in the midst of this terrible war, she was having experiences that would be familiar to any mother. She told me, for example, about her daughter and her daughter's new boyfriend. She found her boyfriend, the first love, and now we're stressed with her father. What to do with this uh, knowledge uh, when your little girl is not a little girl anymore? So uh, the life still go on. That must be rather wonderful to watch. Uh, but stressful. <laughs> <laughs> I know, I know that. Life still goes on. Indeed, life goes on. And actually, we heard this from psychologists, that people who accept the new reality, instead of waiting for war to end and suddenly an old reality to return, they tend to have better mental health and well-being. And it seems that Mrs. Zelenska thinks um, and, and that you think that her experience is a reflection then of the wider experience of other Ukrainians. She's extremely articulate about her own experience and I think very empathetic about the experience that other Ukrainians are feeling. She talked to me about two clear challenges she saw. The number one challenge was encouraging Ukrainian society to speak about mental health openly. These are stats that we got from the First Lady's office. 90% of Ukrainians, we were told, had at least one symptom of an anxiety disorder. Almost 60% are at risk of developing mental disorder. And they're a society which is not really in the habit of consulting specialists. And I think to try and counter that, Alena Zelenska started an awareness campaign called Tyak, 
And tuyak means how are you, but not in the kind of how are you American sense, I don't really want an answer, but how are you really? And the idea is to get people to ask and open up about how they're really feeling. And so the first challenge, she said, was getting that acceptance kind of going. What's the second? Second challenge is the mental health of those veterans returning home. If you walk through Kiev, you see lots of people who have kind of visible scars of war. Many have the less visible scars of war. And how the society will deal with this when you have, you know, so many people have been through such horrific experiences. And she spoke about it in Ukrainian, but we've had this clip translated. This anger does not subside. But our task now is to turn this anger into post-traumatic growth. Because these people who are now holding weapons in their hands will return home, they will become veterans, and they will have the same need for justice. They will not become kinder, they will not become softer. And society must prepare for it now, because there will be outbreaks of aggression, there will be dire situations that we must avoid. I'm afraid that we will be destabilized emotionally, that we will lose the unity that we have now. So it's not just the soldiers who've gone off to fight, but women and children have gone to other countries. The Ukrainian families, millions of them are fractured. And we're already seeing a rising number of divorces. And PTSD, of course, post-traumatic stress disorder, can be a direct path to alcoholism, to drug use. And of course, it can lead to a rise in domestic violence. And so how does she think Ukraine can go about avoiding some of those outcomes? So she says that work is starting now to help those returning from war. And one element of that is clearly ensuring that work is available, that people are valued as members of society, that they feel useful. But another aspect of it that she raised and that is going to be really hard, but that is incredibly important, is that people have a sense of finding unity in their country. She says Ukrainians feel the pain of each death at the front line. Now, she's obviously being metaphoric, but she felt very strongly that this society right now felt that, and that unlike Russia, or I guess unlike Putin, Ukrainians do not see their people as disposable lives. And I think that is a universal human value. It is love for each other. And it gives everything. It gives hope. It gives integrity. We have many dreams. We look at the future. And this is our main difference from our aggressor. But coming back to that notion of being able to stand for a long time, what did she have to say about the future? This war is going to drag on. It is going to drag on. And it's worth pointing out that I spoke to her in September fully two months ago. And the news since then has been sort of almost unremittingly negative, right? This week, in fact, in The Economist, we're reporting how Vladimir Putin appears to be having the upper hand. We've written a lot about the lack of support from the West. But Elena Zelenska was absolutely indefatigable. She's certain that victory will come. She thinks a lot about the future for Ukraine beyond the war, and also about the future for herself and her family. Our family will reunite. We'll live together with my husband and my children all the time. After that, we'll take a vacation and we'll go somewhere. I don't know. (laughs) Anywhere. Do you know where? Anywhere. Anywhere, but together, four of us, 
and uh, it will be long for a month. <laughs> uh, and then uh, we'll think about uh, what we will do, he and me, because I don't want him to be a president for next term or two next terms, it's, it's impossible. Maybe we have to find something, something new. And it will be creative idea. Zanny, thanks very much for your time. Thank you, Jason. It's great to join you as always. And if you want to hear more about my conversation with Elena Zelenska and indeed many others that I had during a remarkable week that I spent with Arkady Ostrovsky, our colleague in Kiev in September, then listen to the full episode on the Weekend Intelligence tomorrow. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Pity the local government officials of China. With slowing growth and a teetering property market, they're having to make do with more uncertainty and less cash. Some are even struggling to pay public sector workers. Meanwhile, they've got another line item in the budget and orders straight from the top on how to spend it, improving some conveniences. Toilets have been a big deal for China's leader, Xi Jinping. He's made a huge issue out of making China's toilets better. And in 2015, he called for a toilet revolution. James Miles is The Economist's China writer at large. We've seen how efficiently things can be carried out when there's an order from Xi Jinping and political momentum behind a campaign. We know about how quickly they've installed their high-speed rail system, for example. But in the case of the toilet revolution, it's not gone so smoothly. And we've seen many problems, many obstacles to the rolling out of this campaign across the country. Well, before we talk about the obstacles, what what is the state of toilets in China in general today? Well, they're certainly a lot better than they were a few years ago, but it is still common to find really very basic ones, essentially just a place where you can squat over a pit. The waste gathers below and it's eventually taken away for use as fertilizer in fields or it's used to feed pigs. I've been in the countryside and uh, sat on such toilets and you can hear the the pigs oinking uh, in expectation as you sit on the toilet. Uh, Xi Jinping, I don't think, really had this in mind when he launched his toilet revolution. Initially, it was a campaign to spruce things up at tourist sites. Many people were complaining about the quality of toilets at them, foreigners not least. But having got this underway, it has now been spreading across the country, into the countryside, and Xi Jinping has kept up the momentum of this campaign ever since he launched it 
It's remarkable how often he refers to it in his speeches and when he goes on tours of the country, particularly in the countryside, he often brings it up with those he talks to. But there's more to it here than than mollifying tourists who, who don't like the state of toilets here. Is it, I don't know, creating a sense of a more modern China or there seems to be more than just getting better TripAdvisor reviews of Lou's? I think it's partly about improving China's image, but also there are important health reasons involved here. Preventing the spread of diarrhea, malaria, with mosquitoes breeding in rural toilets particularly. So this has been an important factor behind this campaign as well. Xi Jinping has been picking up on something that has actually been talked about by UN officials for many years. China was relatively late in coming on board with the idea of overhauling its toilets. But now that it's got the bit between its teeth, so to speak, it is pressing ahead as fast as it can with this. But you're suggesting that that's not as fast as perhaps Mr. C would have liked. No, indeed. And it has encountered a number of obstacles. Interestingly, you would expect that a campaign so personally connected with Xi Jinping himself would result in officials all the way down the line snapping to attention and getting on with it. But the problem is that when orders are given in Beijing, very often officials at lower levels apply a cookie-cutter approach. And uh, what has happened in many places is that toilets have been installed, public ones in the countryside, for example, in areas where for much of the winter temperatures are well below zero. These ones have frozen up and fallen into disuse. Flush toilets have been installed in areas where there simply isn't enough water to sustain them. People have not been taught how to use them properly. Local officials have not been taught how to to maintain them. And elderly people, who really are the mainstay of the Chinese countryside now with so many younger people having moved into cities for work, elderly people have not really adapted to using these new style toilets and have eschewed them. And presumably then that's something of an embarrassment for Mr. Xi, who's been so behind this this whole time. Well, there has been a lot of reporting about these problems in state media and in Chinese academic journals. Indeed, just recently, officials were shown a report on the toilet problem that was aired by state television in June, which has exposed how the toilet building campaign has gone wrong in one particular village in Hunan province. Why are the toilets that have been improved lying idle were its opening words? The TV report featured interviews with residents of a village in Hunan province who were unhappy about the toilets. They said they weren't up to par. So there is this effort, in fact, an open effort to expose problems with the campaign. But of course, this doesn't reflect badly on Xi Jinping. It reflects on local officialdom. And Mr. Xi is keen to deflect attention away from any poor decisions that may have been made in the capital and make local officials shoulder the blame. So those local officials, they've done what they've been told. The toilets are there. They might not be very sustainable. Perhaps people don't know how to use them. They might freeze solid. How can Mr. Xi's vision for all of this be accomplished if if it stops there? What happens next? 
Well, first of all, quite a lot has been happening, and you can see it in Chinese cities, particularly these lavish public toilets that have sprung up everywhere, often extravagantly decorated, loo paper distributed by facial recognition to to prevent too much of it being given out. 50 million or so rural toilets have been upgraded around the country in the past five years, according to official data. But there are these areas of continuing difficulty. So this year, the central government has been focusing not so much on the rapid spread of new toilet facilities across the country, but rather improving the quality and improving the maintenance of those that have already been installed. Inspectors, officials are now being sent into villages to look at what's happening and try to improve education of local people about maintenance and, you know, make sure that all of this effort is is not being wasted. Thanks very much for your time, James. Thank you, Jason. For me, and for most of us really, cruising around the world on a superyacht isn't on our radar. Q radar. But despite all of the global turmoil from COVID to war to inflation, the mega-rich are still somehow splashing out on these luxury vessels. And for yacht brokers and the largest manufacturers, it is a great time to be in the superyacht business. Rather than sinking, as you might expect, the superyacht business is riding on a wave. John Hooper is The Economist's Italy correspondent. The tech barons, the super-rich folk, uh, you might think even they would pause given the damage that the world economy has suffered in recent years. Others, such as Russian oligarchs, actually cannot buy a super or mega yacht at the moment. And yet it seems that plenty of money is being splashed around. How, How much money? How big is this wave you describe? Well, the boss of one company that I spoke to said that sales had risen 20% over the last two years. And a recent survey of the industry found that most, if not all, of the yacht brokerage firms were reporting record sales. What is more, this boom is expected to continue another market research company estimated that the industry's turnover would grow by double in the next 10 years to almost $20 billion. As you say, given the state of the world economy, it it is a surprise, at least to me. What about to the yacht industry folk themselves? Are they as surprised? Yes, they are. I spoke to the chairwoman of Azimut Benetti, who are the world's biggest makers of these craft, Giovanna Vitelli. And she said that during the COVID pandemic, she was sitting there making worst case scenarios and drawing up the budgets that would go with them. Then after COVID came the extension of the war in Ukraine. And overnight, she lost pretty much one in 10 of her clients as a result of Western sanctions. Yet, 
she said that, like other firms in the sector, sales had gone up very considerably over the last couple of years. So it is obviously part of a wider trend. Okay, seems clear enough as a trend then, but but why? Why is this happening? Well, one theory is that just there are more super rich people every year. But that doesn't really hold up because last year when there was a big rise in sales of these yachts, the number of the world's billionaires actually shrank, according to Forbes, which keeps a track on such matters. The other theory is that the pandemic inspired a lot of people to want the ability to cut themselves off from the rest of humanity, and the super yacht is a pretty good way to do that. But Ms. Vitelli, whom I spoke to, she thought that actually there were deeper psychological effects at work. Realisation that life is short and that you need to enjoy it while you can, but also a feeling that life has surprises in store for all of us, and it would be useful to have something that gave you not only mobility, but the chance for isolation. And apparently this has actually brought about changes in the design of these yachts, because in the past they were often used to entertain business associates, uh, so there was a lot of emphasis on ostentation, and that apparently has dropped away to be replaced by more customization, more suiting the family. Among those preferences, of course, is one for limiting the environmental impact of luxury yachts. For a kind of craft that is not known for being particularly environmentally friendly. No, actually very, very unfriendly. There was a study published in 2021 using a sample of billionaires taken from the list of Forbes magazine that found that their yachts, and most of them did own yachts, had carbon equivalent emissions that were over 7,000 tonnes a year. I mean, just to put that in perspective, that is well over a thousand times the total average emissions of ordinary mortals. But it seems that, as I say, even the ultra-wealthy have an environmental conscience and solar panels, wind turbines, hybrid propulsion systems are increasingly common on luxury yachts. So does that give you any temptation then, John, to uh, to get yourself a, a super yacht? You know, if they're going to be more tailored to your tastes and maybe, maybe a little easier on the environment? Uh, tempted, certainly. I wish that the economist's generosity in my regard extended to the purchase of a luxury yacht. <laughs> John, thanks very much for your time. My pleasure. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. The show's editors are Chris Impey and Jack Gill. Our deputy editor is John Joe Devlin, and our sound engineer is Will Rowe, with help this week from Timo Sila. Our senior producers are Rory Galloway and Sarah Lorniuk. Our senior creative producer is William Warren. 
Our producers are Kevin Kaners and Maggie Kudifa, and our assistant producer is Henrietta McFarlane, with extra production help this week from Emily Elias and Benji Guy. We'll all see you back here tomorrow for more from Olena Zelenska on The Weekend Intelligence. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com.